Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Part 1 On the Creature Called Man Chapter 4 God and Comparative Religion Part 2 God The Gods The Demons The Philosophers I believe some such classification will help us to sort out the spiritual experiences of men much more successfully than the conventional business of comparing religions, and that many famous figures will naturally fall into their place in this way, who are only forced into their place in the other. As I shall make use of these titles or terms more than once in narrative and allusion, it will be well to define at this stage for what I mean them to stand. And I will begin with the first, the simplest and the most sublime, in this chapter. In considering the elements of pagan humanity, we must begin by an attempt to describe the indescribable. Many get over the difficulty of describing it by the expedient of denying it, or at least ignoring it. But the whole point of it is that it was something that was never quite eliminated even when it was ignored. They are obsessed by their evolutionary monomania that every great thing grows from a seed, or something smaller than itself. They seem to forget that every seed comes from a tree, or from something larger than itself. Now there is very good ground for guessing that religion did not originally come from some detail that was forgotten because it was too small to be traced. Much more probably, it was an idea that was abandoned because it was too large to be managed. There is very good reason to suppose that many people did begin with the simple but overwhelming idea of one God who governs all, and afterwards fell away into such things as demon worship almost as a sort of secret dissipation. Even the test of savage beliefs, of which the folklore students are so fond, is admittedly often found to support such a view. Some of the very rudest savages, primitive in every sense in which anthropologists would use the word, the Australian Aborigines, for instance, are found to have a pure monotheism with a high moral tone. A missionary was preaching to a very wild tribe of polytheists who had told him all their polytheistic tales, and telling them in return of the existence of the one good God who is a spirit and judges men by spiritual standards. And there was a sudden buzz of excitement among these stolid barbarians, as at somebody who was letting out a secret and they cried to each other, Atahokan! He is speaking of Atahokan! Probably it was a point of politeness and even decency among those polytheists not to speak of Atahokan. The name is not perhaps so much adapted as some of our own to direct and solemn religious exhortation, but many other social forces are always covering up and confusing such simple ideas. Possibly the old god stood for an old morality found irksome in more expansive moments. Possibly intercourse with demons was more fashionable among the best people, as in the modern fashion of spiritualism. Anyhow, there are any number of similar examples. They all testify to the unmistakable psychology of a thing taken for granted, as distinct from a thing talked about. There is a striking example in a tale taken down word for word from a red Indian in California, which starts out with hearty legendary and literary relish. Quote, the sun is the father and ruler of the heavens. He is the big chief, 
the moon is his wife and the stars are their children, and so on through a most ingenious and complicated story, in the middle of which is a sudden parenthesis saying that sun and moon have to do something because it is ordered that way by the great spirit who lives above the place of all. That is exactly the attitude of most paganism towards God. He is something assumed and forgotten and remembered by accident, a habit possibly not peculiar to pagans. Sometimes the higher deity is remembered in the higher moral grades and is a sort of mystery. But always, it has been truly said, the savage is talkative about his mythology and taciturn about his religion. The Australian savages, indeed, exhibit a topsy-turvydom, such as the ancients might have thought truly worthy of the Antipodes. The savage who thinks nothing of tossing off such a trifle as a tale of the sun and moon being the halves of a baby chopped in two, or dropping into small talk about a colossal cosmic cow milked to make the rain, merely in order to be sociable, will then retire to secret caverns sealed against women and white men, temples of terrible initiation where to the thunder of the bull-roarer and the dripping of sacrificial blood, the priest whispers the final secrets known only to the initiate, that honesty is the best policy, that a little kindness does nobody any harm, that all men are brothers, and that there is but one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible. In other words, we have here the curiosity of religious history that the savage seems to be parading all the most repulsive and impossible parts of his belief, and concealing all the most sensible and creditable parts. But the explanation is that they are not, in that sense, parts of his belief, or at least not parts of the same sort of belief. The myths are merely tall stories, though as tall as the sky, the waterspout, or the tropic rain. The mysteries are true stories and are taken secretly, that they may be taken seriously. Indeed, it is only too easy to forget that there is a thrill in theism, a novel in which a number of separate characters all turned out to be the same character would certainly be a sensational novel. It is so with the idea that sun and tree and river are the disguises of one god, and not of many. Alas, we also find it only too easy to take Atahokan for granted. But whether he is allowed to fade into a truism, or preserved as a sensation by being preserved as a secret, it is clear that he is always either an old truism or an old tradition. There is nothing to show that he is an improved product of the mere mythology, and everything to show that he preceded it. He is worshipped by the simplest tribes with no trace of ghosts or grave offerings, or any of the complications in which Herbert Spencer and Grant Allen sought the origin of the simplest of all ideas. Whatever else there was, there was never any such thing as the evolution of the idea of God. The idea was concealed, was avoided, was almost forgotten, was even explained away, but it was never evolved. There are not a few indications of this change in other places. It is implied, for instance, in the fact that even polytheism seems often the combination of several monotheisms. A god will gain only a minor seat on Mount Olympus, when he had owned earth and heaven and all the stars while he lived in his own little valley. Like many a small nation melting in a great empire, 
he gives up local universality only to come under universal limitation. The very name of Pan suggests that he became a god of the wood when he had been a god of the world. The very name of Jupiter is almost a pagan translation of the words, Our Father which art in heaven. As with the great father symbolized by the sky, so with the great mother whom we still call Mother Earth. Demeter and Ceres and Sibylle often seem to be almost incapable of taking over the whole business of godhood, so that men should need no other gods. It seems reasonably probable that a good many men did have no other gods but one of these, worshipped as the author of all. Over some of the most immense and populous tracts of the world, such as China, it would seem that the simpler idea of the Great Father has never been very much complicated with rival cults, though it may have in some sense ceased to be a cult itself. The best authorities seem to think that though Confucianism is in one sense agnosticism, it does not directly contradict the old theism, precisely because it has become a rather vague theism. It is one in which God is called heaven, as in the case of polite persons tempted to swear in drawing rooms. But heaven is still overhead, even if it is very far overhead. We have all the impression of a simple truth that has receded until it was remote without ceasing to be true. And this phrase alone would bring us back to the same idea, even in the pagan mythology of the West. There is surely something of this very notion, of the withdrawal of some higher power, in all those mysterious and very imaginative myths about the separation of earth and sky. In a hundred forms we are told that heaven and earth were once lovers, or were once at one, when some upstart thing, often some undutiful child, thrust them apart, and the world was built on an abyss, upon a division and a parting. One of its grossest versions was given by Greek civilization in the myth of Uranus and Saturn. One of its most charming versions was that of some savage people, who say that a little pepper plant grew taller and taller and lifted the whole sky like a lid. A beautiful barbaric vision of daybreak for some of our painters who love that tropical twilight. Of myths, and the highly mythical explanations which the moderns offer of myths, something will be said in another section. For I cannot but think that most mythology is on another and more superficial plane. But in this primeval vision of the rending of one world into two, there is surely something more of ultimate ideas. As to what it means, a man will learn far more about it by lying on his back in a field and merely looking at the sky than by reading all the libraries, even of the most learned and valuable folklore. He will know what is meant by saying that the sky ought to be nearer to us than it is, that perhaps it was once nearer than it is that it is not a thing merely alien and abysmal, but in some fashion sundered from us, and saying farewell. There will creep across his mind the curious suggestion that after all, perhaps, the myth-maker was not merely a moon-calf or village idiot, thinking he could cut up the clouds like a cake, but had in him something more than it is fashionable to attribute to the troglodyte that it is just possible that Thomas Hood was not talking like a troglodyte when he said that, as time went on, the treetops only told him he was further off from heaven than when he was a boy. But anyhow, the legend of Uranus the Lord of Heaven dethroned by Saturn the Time Spirit would mean something to the author of that poem, and it would mean, among other things, this banishment of the first fatherhood, 
There is the idea of God in the very notion that there were gods before the gods. There is an idea of greater simplicity in all the allusions to that more ancient order. The suggestion is supported by the process of propagation we see in historic times. Gods and demigods and heroes breed like herrings before our very eyes, and suggest of themselves that the family may have had one founder. Mythology grows more and more complicated, and the very complication suggests that at the beginning it was more simple. Even on the external evidence, of the sort called scientific, there is therefore a very good case for the suggestion that man began with monotheism before it developed or degenerated into polytheism. But I am concerned rather with an internal than an external truth, and, as I have already said, the internal truth is almost indescribable. We have to speak of something of which it is the whole point that people did not speak of it. We have not merely to translate from a strange tongue or speech, but from a strange silence. I suspect an immense implication behind all polytheism and paganism. I suspect we have only a hint of it here and there in these savage creeds or Greek origins. It is not exactly what we mean by the presence of God. In a sense, it might more truly be called the absence of God. But absence does not mean non-existence. And a man drinking the toast of absent friends does not mean that from his life all friendship is absent. It is a void, but it is not a negation. It is something as positive as an empty chair. It would be an exaggeration to say that the pagans saw higher than Olympus an empty throne. It would be nearer the truth to take the gigantic imagery of the Old Testament, in which the prophet saw God from behind. It was as if some immeasurable presence had turned its back on the world. Yet the meaning will again be missed if it is supposed to be anything so conscious and vivid as the monotheism of Moses and his people. I do not mean that the pagan peoples were in the least overpowered by this idea merely because it is overpowering. On the contrary, it was so large that they all carried it lightly, as we all carry the load of the sky. Gazing at some detail like a bird or a cloud, we can all ignore its awful blue background. We can neglect the sky, and precisely because it bears down upon us with an annihilating force, it is felt as nothing. A thing of this kind can only be an impression, and a rather subtle impression. But to me, it is a very strong impression made by pagan literature and religion. I repeat that in our special sacramental sense there is, of course, the absence of the presence of God. But there is, in a very real sense, the presence of the absence of God. We feel it in the unfathomable sadness of pagan poetry. For I doubt if there was ever in all the marvelous manhood of antiquity a man who was happy as St. Francis was happy. We feel it in the legend of a golden age and again in the vague implication that the gods themselves are ultimately related to something else, even when that unknown god has faded into a fate. Above all, we feel it in those immortal moments when the pagan literature seems to return to a more innocent antiquity and speak with a more direct voice, so that no word is worthy of it except our own monotheistic monosyllable. We cannot say anything but God in a sentence like that of Socrates bidding farewell 
to his judges, quote, I go to die, and you remain to live, and God alone knows which of us goes the better way. We can use no other word, even for the best moments of Marcus Aurelius. Quote, can they say, dear city of Cecrops, and canst thou not say, dear city of God? We can use no other word in that mighty line in which Virgil spoke to all who suffer, with the veritable cry of a Christian before Christ, in the untranslatable, O posse graviora dabit Deus his quoque finum. In short, there is a feeling that there is something higher than the gods. But because it is higher, it is also further away. Not yet could even Virgil have read the riddle and the paradox of that other divinity, who is both higher and nearer. For them, what was truly divine was very distant, so distant that they dismissed it more and more from their minds. It had less and less to do with the mere mythology of which I shall write later. Yet even in this there was a sort of tacit admission of its intangible purity when we consider what most of the mythology is like. As the Jews would not degrade it by images, so the Greeks did not degrade it even by imaginations. When the gods were more and more remembered only by pranks and profligacies, it was relatively a movement of reverence. It was an act of piety to forget God. In other words, there is something in the whole tone of the time suggesting that men had accepted a lower level and still were half-conscious that it was a lower level. It is hard to find words for these things, yet the one really just word stands ready. These men were conscious of the fall, if they were conscious of nothing else. Tis the gift to be simple, tis the gift to be free, tis the gift to come down where we ought to be, and when we find ourselves in the place just right, will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.